AM 790 Talk and Business presents Water Fire Ignites Rhode Island with your host, Bronwyn Dannenfelser. Join Bronwyn to hear about the next Water Fire event in downtown Providence, plus other great cultural events happening in the community. Now, here's your host, Bronwyn Dannenfelser. Well, and good afternoon and welcome to Water Fire Ignites Rhode Island here on AM 790, your station for talk and business. We are here with you every Wednesday, bringing you behind the scenes of Water Fire and behind the scenes of some of the wonderful things happening here in Rhode Island in the art scene. Um, and I'm here today with my fabulous co-host, the artistic director and creator of Water Fire, Barnaby Evans. Howdy, Brahman. How are you? I'm doing great. I, I think I'm still running off that high from this last weekend and that salute to veterans. I mean, what an event. It was a gorgeous, gorgeous night. A really amazing uh, assembling of people and uh, wonderful moments, pride. There's yeah. a, there's some great video on the Waterfire website and still photographs. We're still hearing from people from it. I know, and we've got, we, you know, we heard some really beautiful and touching stories, and, you know, up at the State House. Wasn't it amazing to see the uh, World War II bomber pilot that was being honored, 90-some-odd uh, years old, and also the, the World War II woman who was part of the waves? Absolutely, and, and we heard from a Marine Corps colonel that he'd, uh, he was retired, and he'd been to, he said, memorial things all over the world his whole life, and this was the most moving thing he'd ever been to. So, so we yeah. we done good, I think. I think uh, that's the everybody best did. Uh, the whole yeah. community came out. The the veterans were there in their pride and their engagement, and we had so many supporters and sponsors and fellow participants. It was it was magical. Yeah, I mean, from Barbara Haynes, the entire executive committee, Lori Needham, Joan Cody, I, I don't think, and Pete Gaynor, of course, I don't think we can ever thank people enough, and especially, again, the sponsors that really made it um, a, a fabulous night. And so we just look forward to making next year even bigger and better, right? Absolutely. We've got some fun ideas. People are already coming up with suggestions. There were some moments that were so magical that uh, it will continue. Yeah. It's been a great tradition in Brahman. I just want to take a moment. This has been a dream of yours for a long time, and I think it's important for us to remember that and acknowledge that. Uh, it's been a pa- personal passion of yours for all this time. And it's been great to see it become all the success that we'd hoped when you first talked about it. Yeah, thanks, Barnaby. I'd say, yeah, I think at last year I was referring to it as my baby because it took so much effort and we put so much time into it. But, um, yeah, it's exciting to see that grow. Um, but today we've got a great show uh, for everybody that's out there. And we are really excited that we've got esteemed author, author um, Jack Partridge, or J.J. Partridge, uh, and he's here to talk about the newest novel in his series of um, their mystery novels featuring our favorite sleuth, Algie Temple, and the title of the uh, book is Scratched. And Scratched. Uh, Scratched, that's right, Scratched. you're getting to the phonetic, correct, and, and this is the third novel, the third Algie Temple mystery, and this is a mystery novel, and uh, I believe the first chapter is called Waterfire, which got our attention. Um, but tell us about Algie Temple. First of all, he's a Marine, right? Yes, Algie is uh, in his f- early 50s. And uh, in his youth, he was uh, enlisted as a Marine. And then he subsequently went to uh, Officer Candidate School. And he became a Marine uh, Lieutenant. And he was there during the, uh, uh, I think, mostly forgotten now, incursion into Lebanon back in the early 80s when President Reagan uh, ordered the Marines in to protect American citizens. And he was um, wounded 
like many others, in a uh, very catastrophic event. There was a uh, truck that ran into a Marine uh, barracks, and the barracks was a high-rise, five five or six stories, and collapsed, and he was he was in it. So that was one of the interests that Barnaby and I had about about Algie Temple. He was a Marine, he was a wounded Marine, and uh, he went on with his life, just like so many other veterans that were right. there on Saturday. And by the way, let me just say it was terrific. Uh, it was enjoyable to be a participant, but in terms of just being there with people and talking to them about their uh, about their experiences as a veteran, whether it be in peace or in war, uh, and having people come up to other people and say, thank you for your service. I saw that over and All over and over again. Yeah, absolutely. And veterans were simply amazed. Amazed. Yeah. yeah. You know, one of, the, one of our early goals was thinking about the Vietnam vets never really having a homecoming oh, and that's trying true. to build that into the evening because for all the tragedies of that war, the soldiers who fought in it were not responsible for any of that. Uh, absolutely they, right. I was I was uh, there uh, between 65 and 66. Yeah. Uh, I came back as a as a captain, and I remember uh, it was just at the beginning when when the attitude of the American civilian force was changing. And the first time I ran into it, I ran into it in an airport in San Francisco. I still had my, my uh, I was going out of duty, and I still had my uniform on. And this young guy came up to me and just ranted and raved at me. And I, I just couldn't believe it. I thought, the kid's crazy. What is he, what's he saying all these things for? But uh, obviously there were more to yeah. come after after that, because that was pretty early in the, in the NAM years. Yeah, it, it's a, a moment, a, a sad moment in our history where somehow, even if you felt that the war had challenges and, uh, you know, was maybe mis-strategized or something, but the last person that could be blamed was the soldiers who were in the field. You are are so right. And by the way, if folks are interested in a very good novel about that period, they should read Nelson DeMille's Upcountry, Upcountry by Nelson DeMille. He wrote it back in about uh, 2000, I think. And it's about a Vietnam veteran who goes back, and he's involved with, you know, obviously it's a thriller. So it, it's a great, it's a great book. I myself have one in the typewriter called Saigon T, and it's about a bunch of people who are uh, part of a unit, and they decide to go back on Moss, and they're going to go through something. And of course, there's a murder, and there's, uh, you know, bad things happening to people, and we have to find out who did what to whom when. They did it. So that's called Saigon Tea, and that's probably out. That's about a two-year on schedule. Jack, how long have you been writing novels for? Well, I'll tell you a story. I wrote a novel for my kids about 10 years ago uh, as a Christmas present, and I thought, gee, what a wonderful idea. I always wanted to write a novel. I'll give it to them as a present. I'll be all done. It's be, be, that, that'll be Get it. that bug over with, right? <laughs> yeah, and I gave it to them, and there were three English majors. And they basically said, well, that's great, Dad, and is there anything else that I should be, <laughs> should be looking for in my stocking? And I said, yes, of course. But, but um, <laughs> and I put it away, and uh, then my son David had a, a serious accident in Colorado, and had to come home for a while, and he really didn't have anything to do because he was he was housebound. So I gave him the book as an editor. I said, "Well, why don't you edit the book, and we'll just go through it, just like you know, if you were really doing it." And he did, and he did a fantastic job. And by the time it got to a real editor, it was in, in good shape. And that was called Caram Shot. That was the mm-hmm. first of the first of the trilogy. And after that, uh, Straight Pool came three years later. And then I um, I was ready to go in 2010 with uh, with Scratch. Unfortunately, had something called Guillain Barre that took me out of the picture for a year or so. 
and then it went back and I had to go through the whole process again. And for those who out there who are thinking about writing novels, one of the things you want to do is, of course, get a good agent, and I have a good agent. And what she told me after she read it, she said, this is publishable, don't worry about it, but you have to change the tense. I actually had done this for some reason in third person rather than first person like the first two, and she said, well, you have to do it. You have to re- rewrite it and put it into third Mm-hmm. How long did that take? That was terrible. I was going <laughs> to hire some bright young thing from Providence College just to do it because I thought it was so simple, and it just wasn't. It was extremely difficult. Sure. It took about another six months to get a draft out because, after all, I'm a full-time lawyer, and this is my, my avocation. Jack, then no, it goes to curi- I'm curious about that. I mean, you were the first two were in first person. Um, what... How did it come out in third? Did, was there a reason? Or you I have I have no idea. I think I just wanted to try it. Okay. I think it was as simple as that, just trying to try it. And then I found out that was not such a great idea from the point of view of the publisher. So, I, so I guess it. in terms of the immediacy of the experience is, is what mystery writers are so... Because I love your writing. I've enjoyed well, it. I, I, I love the vividness of it. And we're going to go out for a break in a little bit. But one of the things that's wonderful about it is you capture Providence in such a fascinating way. You cast, capture all the different neighborhoods and the people and the people at the university and the you know the, the neighborhoods, Federal Hill, the lawyers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Well, when we come back, I want to learn a little bit more about Algae Temple. All right, you're listening to Waterfire Ignites Rhode Island here on AM790, your station for talk in business. And we're talking to Jack Partridge, or J.J. Partridge, all about his newest book, Scratched. Or how do you pronounce it again? Scratched. And hello, 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 and welcome back. You are listening to Waterfire Ignites Rhode Island. I'm Bronwyn Dannenfeldt, your host, and I am here with Barnaby Evans, the creator of Waterfire. And we have been talking to Jack Partridge, or J.J. Partridge, uh, as he, his pen name is, uh, about his latest novel. Um, his and latest mystery novel. Mystery actually. novel. Starring and, uh, uh, Algie Temple. Exactly. And, you know, when we were just at break, I was asking Jack, you know, where this, in, this inspiration comes from, being a full-time lawyer. Did... Does your law background and everything that you've seen in courtrooms and everywhere else, does that also add to part of the character of Algie? Because he, he's a lawyer as well, isn't he? Well, he is, and his uh, his uh, girlfriend always says that a conversation with Algie is like uh, being under a deposition notice. Uh, you, uh, <laughs> the, he's, uh, he's an interrogator. He uh, keeps going yeah. and he keeps going until such time as he gets an answer, and then he's through, and then you start another part of the, part of the conversation. Yeah, I think being a lawyer, you naturally uh, work with words. Uh, fortunately for me, I went to Providence College where I used to have to write a uh, from freshman year to senior year a 600-word essay uh, every single week in addition to the term papers and everything else. So writing always came easy to me. When I went to Harvard Law School, uh, I found I was disappointed we didn't do enough writing because that was right. what I really right. could score on, quite frankly. 
and ah and after that, it was always easy just to write. i could write briefs. i could write motions. i could write letters. and i knew how to do them. i knew what the syntax would be. and i'm a devotee of e b. waits, so sprunken white was important to me growing up. absolutely, e b. white and you keep going on that basis. and then i say, like if somebody asked me to write six hundred words on this microphone, give me five minutes. you've got it. yeah. <laughs> that's great. well, but the right the writing has a vividness and a um, uh, a punchiness I really enjoy, and the dialogue is great too. So tell us about Algie Temple. He's—I uh, know he's—he's he's a lawyer. He's in Providence. He's an ex-marine. He plays pool. Plays pool. And he's comfortable in every circle of the city. It's always fascinating to me the way he moves well, around. Well, he—he's moved around. That's yeah. exactly right. Algie uh, is a scion of a very, very wealthy family who live on Power Street. Let's let's get down We're to all the, rich the folks east side. Us, I remember, we right? know the yeah. story of Power Street. Yeah. He, he grew up on Power Street in a 1792 um, mansion that John Adams once said was the most beautiful building, residential building in all of uh, all of the United States at that point in time. His mother was a doyen at the uh, Carter University. She was on the board of trustees. Uh, after he got through with the Marines, uh, he was in law school and he. Uh, decided that he was going to uh, be uh, a Manhattan DA, Mm -hmm. uh, and through political connections, he got a job in the Manhattan uh, DA's office. Unfortunately for him, he was assigned to night court duty, and so most of his time was spent with, you know, the nighttime crimes that we all used to, drugs and homelessness and so in those days and prostitution and whatnot. Well, he sort of got burned out doing that, and he decided at the same time his uh, then-girlfriend uh, was doing very well at a very well-known law firm. He was doing absolutely nothing. It was time to go home. So he went home, and he went to work with, a, with an old white shoe firm here in Providence, and after a while, he represented this university on the east side of Providence called Carter University. And they eventually were looking for a university counsel, someone who would be their lawyer. So mm-hmm. he took that job, and that's how he got into into yeah. the university milieu. And university councils are always very close and very tight to the provost and the president. Otherwise, it doesn't work. Those mm-hmm. two positions yeah. are key to a university council. So that's what he does, and that's how he knows about academia and academic politics and how universities actually work and whatnot. And his practice is such that he can get into other things, such as sleuthing when someone sure. dies mysteriously. So. Yeah, and when somebody dies mysteriously at Waterfire in the mm, opening chapter, right. Jack, how does that happen? <laughs> well, I, I, I use Waterfire as a real metaphor for the city that I love. Providence is a great city. And Waterfire exemplifies so many parts of the city of Providence. It brings everybody together. It's a great moment. People are all happy. They're interested. They're surprised and whatnot. And, and so uh, what does Jack do? Uh, what is what? What does Jack do? Everyone's so happy. They're here in the moment. Well, I mean, uh, <laughs> it's it's I think it's a great metaphor for the city. I can't think of it any other way of describing what it uh, what it does. So so I thought you know it'd be interesting if something in a way, somewhat tragic occurred mm-hmm. uh, because everybody would get a jolt. They'd all say, Uh-oh. oh, yeah, well, <laughs> that happened at, at water fires. So in my case, I have a young couple and their child, and uh, and the child is playing at the water with a stick, a stick that was once part of a balloon, you know, one of the many novelty toys that are there. And she's whacking the water as a kid would do, and uh, all of a sudden it hits something. And then the question is, what was it? Well, you find out in Chapter 2 what it was, <laughs> and then we go on from there. 
Well, you know, I got to say, I think this is funny because when Barnaby went over to Singapore to do water fire a few years back, there was a very funny story because they were very strict over there and they were researching water fire. And some brown students had made sort of a parody of yeah, water up? fire saying, you know, flames are everywhere, gondolas are flying all around Providence. <laughs> yeah, and uh, the Singapore government took so it seriously. So yeah, the Singapore I tell government you, Jack, came across this article on the Internet and I couldn't <laughs> convince them it was a parody. So I think. <laughs> We better be careful. Surpassed Chernobyl in terms of toxicity. <laughs> yeah. So and I think if you ever go back to Singapore, they're going to be like, nope, J.J. Partridge said right here that right. you know. <laughs> That's because he's such a great producer. He can make, make the city of uh, the, the country of Singapore do flip flops for him. That's pretty good. That's pretty we good. had fun in Singapore, but we didn't have uh, we didn't have uh, Algae Temple. Um, the other thing that I like about the the series, because uh, we should talk, this is the third one. The first one was Karam Shot, then there was Straight Pool, and this is Scratched. And you have some readings uh, on November 15th at Barrington Books at, from 2 to 4. You're going to be doing a reading and a book signing. Book signing, prim- primarily, yes. Good. And then at Books on the Square in Providence on November 20th at right. 6.30. And uh, those, you know, I encourage people to go to that to read the book. It's and to hear you read it. I'm, I'm look. I'm going to come to one of these because I want to hear you read it as well. There's a, there's a great voice to this book, and uh, you get all over the city. People from Providence will recognize many, many things here. Well, that's what I was, uh, did you have to change the names of some of the innocent? <laughs> well, you actually find that, uh, and I debated about this. The street names are 95% accurate. About mm-hmm. 5% I had to change so a George would become Mary Street or mm-hmm. something like that or a, uh, you know, it, it had to do certain things to make it a little I don't want to identify a particular house because I like mm-hmm. to talk about the architecture of sure. East Side or Federal Hill or Washington Park. When I did a, the second one uh, had a piece, the oh, first one I'm sorry, had a piece in, uh, in Washington Park mm-hmm. and uh, I, I knew Washington Park but not that well and I, and I was uh, on a very windy and snowy day for some reason, I decided I would go to Washington Park so I could find this house, just my, the house that I would picture here. And sure enough, it's, uh, it was snowing out, and they closed the roads of Roger Williams Park. I had to go all the way around it. Then I found myself uh, going towards Edgewood instead of because of the way the plows were going. Finally, I got to Washington Park, and I think it did a pretty good job. Mm-hmm. I think it did a pretty good job. <laughs> I think that's classic. Some of the uh, some of the people that are in the books are they're there in each of the books. Algie Temple, of course, the the hero, and his uh, girlfriend Nadi Winokur is there. She's a psychology a psychologist at the university, uh, and uh, then there's Benno Pachigalupi. Benno yeah. is a retired state policeman who was involved with uh, organized crime figures. So he's he's a terrific guy to to work with. And he also and he also has a particular insight into solving all the mysteries and everything. It's uh, you know. It's I'm looking forward to reading it. And you know, I've got to ask, who is your favorite mystery author? Well, my very favorite is uh, P.D. James. I would say Michael Conley is probably my second one because he's so so current and he produces so fast. Uh, a thriller writer that I really like is Lee Childs. I think everybody knows Lee Childs. Yeah, Terrific. I mean, if you go into a airport uh, bookseller, you'll see. Ten different Lee Childs and six different yeah. Nelson DeMille's and and whatnot. And of course, we have some very good authors around here too. Yeah, uh, John Mark, Land, Mark Arsenault, uh, Mark uh, Arsenault, yeah, yeah. former journal uh, reporter, now at the Boston Globe, and author of, uh, of three great books. And we've got some really good people here. And, and John had written a, a 
mystery thriller novel that involved water fire also. Um, it's called A Walk in the Dark. Really? Yeah. I didn't yeah. know that. Well, that's terrific. Yeah, Jack, do you have a website in case people wanted to go and could people buy books off your website or do they go to Amazon? I've well, the yeah, they can go, certainly go to Amazon or Nook or any of those uh, e-readers, Sony readers, but uh, my, my website is uh, www.jjpartridge.com. Not very imaginative, but, but you know, right there. Yeah. So, uh, but you'll learn a <laughs> so lot no about books. So no period, books. just jjpartridge.com. And we do want to encourage you to support local bookstores. That's a really important part of yes. the community. So this is out now in all the bookstores. It just came out. It's been out about a week, right? Right. And you were at Waterfire signing it on the, I think, second day it was out. So that is correct. Thank yep. you for being there. Yep. It was a, it was a great experience for me too. It and thank you so much for joining us today, Jack. Again, I am looking forward to uh, getting to meet Algae and having a great book to read. So you're listening to AM 790, your station for talking business, and we'll be back after the break. Welcome back. You're listening to Waterfire Ignites Rhode Island, and I'm your host, Bronwyn Dannenfeltzer, and I am here with the creator of Waterfire and my co-host, Barnaby Evans, and gosh, that Jack Partridge, he's just, he's great, isn't he? He is great, and uh, he's a good writer, and you can tell how much he enjoys the city mm-hmm. and the tales that he knows to tell, so Yeah, and, you know, and, and what kind things he had to say um, about the water fire that we just finished on Saturday, our water fire salute to veterans. And that's going to lead us right into um, our next guest for the second half of the show, uh, a truly, truly amazing woman um, who joined us at Water Fire on Saturday. She was on the Washington Street Bridge with the VA, and uh, her name is Stacy Purcell. Hello, Stacy. Are you there? Yes, I am. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And thanks for um, coming down and participating in Waterfire on Saturday. How did you find it? It was really cool. A lot of wonderful people. Oh, good. And did a lot of people get their portraits taken? Yes. Probably more than I can handle, actually. But <laughs> we, we managed it, and uh, everybody everybody walked away with something, which was wonderful. Oh, that is so good. So, you know, I just let our listeners know, I know that you started um, in the Air Force, right, as a photographer at the age of 17? Yes. And then how and how long were you serving and over and 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 were you I know you were overseas and traveled to over 40 countries. Maybe you can give our listeners a little bit of um, a background and history on yourself. <laughs> Okay, so I joined when I was 17, mm-hmm. and I didn't go straight into combat photography. Actually, I did four years of um, intelligence. I basically took all the film from the U-2 spy plane and processed that. And um, it wasn't really something I was keen on, and I was looking for other outlets. Um, I was more of the creative type, and it was pretty technical. So I found out about combat camera from this guy who was, um, kind of running around the base doing his own thing, wearing a flight suit and flying around aircraft and mm-hmm. taking pictures. And I was really enamored of him and mm-hmm. um, asked him what his job was, and he said he was co- combat camera. So while I was stationed in England, I put together a portfolio and applied for a combat camera. Of course, it was more than just making pretty pictures. You had to be really physically fit and mm-hmm. have stellar performance reports. And so I, I, I submitted a package thinking I didn't have a chance because there were so many other wonderful photographers competing for that one position. And um, 
I got accepted in the fall of 2001, and then September 11th happened, and I got stationed in Charleston, South Carolina, which is the first combat camera. At the time, it was the first and only. And um, shortly thereafter, I began my training, both um, like close quarters combat, weapons training, tactical driving, um, anything that you can imagine a combat photographer needs, I did. And um, then I became aerial qualified and um, became an aerial combat photographer on top of just being a regular combat photographer. And and during that time, I traveled all over the world, and not just with the Air Force, but with the Army, Marines, and the Navy, covering all manner of operations. So... Not necessarily just um, combat and, and breaking doors down, finding the enemy, but also doing humanitarian relief work, and um, all of all of which is really important. I say that must be the things that you've seen must be amazing because um, there is a lot of humanita- humanitarian work that I know uh, happens overseas. And so, did you have at any point a um, a favorite place? Home. Home. (laughs) That's a good answer. That's a very good answer. (laughs) Well, I know, you know, when you were at Waterfire, you were working on something called the Veterans Portrait Project, which you started in um, Charleston, South Carolina, correct? Yes. And and how did that come about? Um, Were were you injured? Am I correct in thinking that you were injured at some point? Yes. Um, and that's what led to my career. I was uh, injured in Iraq, mm-hmm. and during my rehabilitation in Charleston, I eventually was retired from the Air Force and um, began getting my care from the VA. Yeah. And um, while sitting there, I was kind of lost. I didn't know what to do with myself. I mean, I grew up in the military at yeah. 17. Um, you know, they groomed me, and I, I figured that was where my life was going to be always. I never saw anything outside of it, and so I was kind of lost uh, occupationally. I what does a combat phot- photographer do without combat? And mm-hmm. um, I was injured and was told all the things that I couldn't do. And, and that, that's kind of what I focused on, all the things that I wasn't able to do. And sitting in the VA, um, an older gentleman, a World War II uh, veteran, leaned over and he was, I think he was trying to flirt or just make small talk, <laughs> I couldn't tell with. Um, he, he said, hey, uh, you bring in your grandpa to his doctor's appointment. And I looked at him and uh, smiled and chuckled, of course, and I said, no, I'm the veteran. And uh, this look of shock came across his face, of course. But from there, we started talking. And what I found was his experiences weren't wholly different from mine, albeit a different generation. And his were far more heroic in my eyes. But um, he liberated a concentration camp um, during World War II and had these extraordinary stories. What had occurred to me at that point, though, is that he didn't think I was a veteran. And I had no idea that I was sitting next to a hero. Mm Mm-hmm. And that probably is the case for everybody. Considering that only 1% of the, of the uh, Americans serve, we have this idea of what veterans look like based on what media feeds us. Yep. And the only stories that we do hear are usually the ones that earn Congressional Medals of Honor. Mm-hmm. But little do we know that so many more stories of heroism are just sitting there untold. And that's when it happened, my life-changing um, epiphany. And I thought, wow, I should take this guy's portrait and archive his history before it's too late. So the, and, the, the uh, project is taking pictures and stories and taking the stories and also speaking about them? I've seen the pictures. I, went to, I was on your website. They're absolutely amazing. Um, and they are from veterans, the ones that I saw from all different eras and um, all different wars. And I just, I thought that was great. But is, is, are you when, when you're documenting their stories, are you going to put this all in a, in a book, in a, in a collective, or...? <laughs> Oh my gosh! I had no intention of um, of this 
project getting so um, big, um, mm-hmm. and a lot of folks keep asking me about whether I'm going to do a book. I would love to do a book. I just need to find the time and the financing to do it mm-hmm. um, because I don't I don't make money off of the Veterans Portrait Project. It's something I do from my heart, and I don't charge veterans because it's my way of giving back. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I have to squirrel things together, and that takes time and. Um, you know, this is a lifetime endeavor, so it'll get there eventually. Well, it's a really beautiful thing that you're doing. And um, it, are, now, do you have other projects on the side that you do as well um, when, as it pertains to your photography? Well, I, um, that, this is my only personal project mm-hmm. um, that's, uh, because it takes up a lot of time. I mean, I went to 33 cities last year, but um, actually probably more than that. Wow. Um, I do commercial photography. Mm-hmm. Um, so and I and I stick to sort of military topics and things like that, um, where my background is and uh, some editorial assignments, and that kind of feeds into my ability to, you know, squirrel away some money and and do more veterans portrait projects along with the support and um, contributions of others that help me do it. Well, you know, I'm a photographer also, and I, I must say that you do wonderful portraits. You really capture. A sense of the history, I, and I heard you speak at uh, the Biff Conference in Providence two years ago, and uh, we were so pleased to have you come photograph at Waterfire for the salute to veterans. And um, I understand we can look forward to having you come back next year. Is that uh, what I've heard? Absolutely, I would love to like do it bigger and better next year too. Um, you know, I'm so thankful that the um, VA New England asked me to come out and, and take part of it this year. I had no idea, um, living in the Southeast, I had no idea what goes on up there. And I'm like really shocked. You guys do a wonderful event. I mean, I think that's a really wonderful um, tribute to veterans and I would love to be up there again next year. Well, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, with a little more time, we'll, we'll try to find a place where we can maybe also do an exhibition of your work, because in addition to the service you've been doing of capturing people, um, it's very moving to see these, um, the images you've done, and uh, they're, they're, they're very compelling. Thank so. you. So we'll definitely look forward to having you back. Um, yeah. Next, we're going to actually have to take a break right now, Stacy. but would you mind hanging on the line and coming back with us in just a couple of minutes? Sure. Excellent. Absolutely. Thank you so much. You're listening to Waterfire Ignites Rhode Island here on AM790, your station for talk and business. We'll be back. Welcome back. You are listening to AM790, your station for talk and business, and Waterfire Ignites Rhode Island. And Barnaby and I have been chatting with Stacy Purcell, um, an incredible woman uh, and veteran photographer uh, who is in the Air Force and who has really um, been doing an incredible project, which is called the Veterans Portrait Project, where she's been taking pictures of veterans and really capturing not only veterans from all different wars and eras, but their stories as well um, and their portraits and just absolutely beautiful. So, Stacy, thank you so much again for um, being with us today on the radio and thank you for um, having been at Waterfire on Saturday. Yes, my pleasure. Stacy, you know, a portrait is so 
challenging to do, and you do it so well. You know, when I look through your portraits, um, the whole personality of these people has just opened up, and, and, and many of them are, are happy, some of them are pensive, some of them are, are thoughtful, it, but you really bring the personality of the people, and that's hard to do. Um, is there? It, you must have lots of different ways to get people to have in that sort of moment of trust where you can capture that. I think the first and most important thing is that I'm relatable. And when they sit in the chair, of course, everybody's kind of nervous in front of the camera, but then it just comes down to one person talking to another and, uh, you know, just having a conversation. And a lot of it is, for me, just letting them know that they're in a safe place where they can talk and then um, letting them have the floor and listening. Now, they know that I've been there and done that. You know, most of them know I'm a combat veteran and I've seen a lot of stuff and I'm not going to judge them for what they what they say or what they feel. And uh, Even um, more, you're no. going to understand them and empathize with them so that they feel they've got a sympathetic ear. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, I feel like that um, allows them to get some stuff off their chest and that can be very therapeutic in the process. And um, for me too, you know, um, this is kind of therapy for me in a lot of ways. And um, just being able to give them the floor and let them know that it's their, their time to shine. Uh, it, it is what I let them drive the session and um, whether they are happy go lucky and they want to smile all the time, that's up to them or whether they feel like they need to get some stuff off their chest. And I've had that before. I've had a, vet, a Vietnam veteran who has never spoke of his military history before, not even to his wife, whom he'd been married to for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. And when he sat in my chair, he just offloaded his burdens, and that was extraordinary. And she, I, I heard her weeping quietly over my shoulder, and mm-hmm. she gave me a huge hug, and she said he'd never talked about it before and that this was a real blessing. And um, I, I believe that that's ultimately why I keep doing it, too. It's not just to make these extraordinary photos and honor the veterans, but to give them a chance to um, open up a little bit. And, Stacy, do you send these um, portraits back to the veterans and their families? Because they're, they're so incredible. Yes. Um, the portraits, I, I send them... I, I try to do at least one. If I can do two, that'd be great. If I can do three, that's awesome. Um, and I give them to the veterans as a, as a gift for their service. And do you find that there's um, that there would be certain um, areas of veterans that like to be photographed more than others, um, or is it kind of all over the place? I mean, I know that sometimes there are, there are groups of um, Korean veterans, uh, for instance, we had found when we did our first water fire that weren't too big on being photographed or really being put out there. Um, well, what do you find as you approach all these different veterans? Well, I guess. I guess I'm pretty charming because I can kind of convince <laughs> anybody. <laughs> um, you know, I'm there. I, I guess I, I, I let them know that by, by them sitting in my chair, they're helping me. Yeah. And they are, they're helping me continue my project and to continue my healing and my recovery process. And of course we as brothers and sisters of each other, we're a very tight um, community. And even if they're very, um, Resistant at first, you know, I, I say, hey, you're going to be really helping me out. And, and naturally, they sit in the chair, and one thing leads to another. And so. so how many portraits have you done to date? Do you know? Uh, I haven't tallied recently. Um, my, my last tally was over 3,000. 
That's unbelievable. That's very impressive. And you're doing a very pure, formal sort of portraiture. We should talk about that. It's in black and white. It usually has a white background. Very, very simple lighting. And it's just a very honest appraisal of the person on the other side of the lens. Yes. Well done. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I appreciate that. And I, I thought about what was going to be timeless and what was going to work across the generations. And I felt like black and white was the way to go and just to let each veteran sort of emote their own personality. And, and I find that that's been pretty successful um, on their part. <laughs> you know, um, I just set up the lights and I take pictures, but I just give them a platform to be who they are. It's more complicated than that, but I, I understand what you're saying. I mean, it's uh, it, there's a chemistry that happens in trying to do a portrait and a, a a fearlessness and an acceptance and an honesty that all mixes together, and uh, you clearly have a gift for it. And uh, at the same time, I love the way you talk about it's um, a gift back to you, and I think that sense that the your the person sitting for their portrait feels they're participating in a in a sort of mutual project that's a part of your uh, part of the magic you've captured. And yeah, and so Stacy, I've got to ask, what's next on your agenda? Where are you going next to do portraits? I'm actually headed to Albany tomorrow. Mm-hmm. I'm going up to um, I'm going to the Songwriting with Soldiers retreat, which is a, another nonprofit organization that helps veterans in, in a way, a different way. So I'm going to set up my little veterans portrait project booth and um, take pictures of veterans who are participating in that. Great, and you and uh, I see that you need you need sponsors too, right? You you can get sponsors, or um, people can actually sponsor you going and taking pictures at some of these events. Yes. All right, mm-hmm. that's good to know, and we'll put that. Make sure that that gets up on our website as well, because what you're doing is very important, and it should be funded. And I'm sure that there's a lot of people out there that would be happy to fund. I a also want to give like people this. the website to find it. It's veteransportraitproject.com, right? Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. and there are many examples there, and that's just uh, you know several hundred of the photographs you've taken. But it's a there you have interviews, you have other things you've written about it, and uh, it's uh, well worth a visit. And we are so pleased to have you come to Providence, and we look forward to your coming back next November. Me too. Thank um, you, and thank you again so much, Stacy. You you really are you're an inspiration, um, and we are just we're so delighted that you took the time out today to uh, talk to us and talk to our listeners. And we will look forward to seeing you next year at the third annual Water Fire Salute to Veterans. And to all of our listeners out there, have a wonderful day. We'll be back with you next Wednesday. You're listening to AM 790 Talk and Business. Bye. Mm-hmm.